Welcome to Take This Poem Podcast, where we explore the rich, wild things that good poems can do in the everyday lives of ordinary folks. I'm your host, Mary Guidis. Whether you're a longtime poetry lover like I am, or just barely interested, I invite you to take this poem. I hope it amends the soil of your life. Why hello. This spring, I reread Grapes of Wrath, and I want to share a tiny excerpt for you that's pertinent to the interview featured in this episode. Towards the beginning of Grapes of Wrath, the main character, Tom Joad, has been released from jail and is making his way back towards his family and home. He hitches a ride with a truck driver, and the driver tries to impress him, and one of his efforts goes like this. I've knew guys that done screwy things while they're driving trucks. I remember a guy used to make up poetry. It passed the time. He looked over secretly to see whether Jode was interested or amazed. Jode was silent, looking into the distance ahead, along the road, along the white road that waved gently like a groundswell. Well, Jode is a tough crowd, but I am interested and amazed by the idea of a truck driver poet. And if you are too, then this episode is going to be a treat. I interviewed a local poet, Dave Mailer, who's spent a couple decades of his life behind the wheel of a truck, both on the road and more recently driving around and around and around in a landfill. Dave is the editor of an online poetry journal called Triggerfish Critical Review. He's on the board of the Oregon Poetry Association, and his book of poems called Roadworthy was published in 2020. While these credentials and accomplishments are wonderful, to me what's even better is just what a good poetry buddy Dave is. If I didn't know him, I probably wouldn't have started this podcast because he was the one who showed me in real life how one person's enthusiasm for poetry could fan the flames of another's and how fun it is to just have companionship and enjoying poetry, and that's what I wanted to spread to y'all here. Anyway, this episode is long and gangly. It was recorded in multiple sittings and days and even locations, so it might have a patchwork feel, and it also has a bit of trucker-like language, including an F-bomb that I did not have the heart to edit out. So the episode will start with a question and answer session where I ask Dave questions about poetry in general. And then about halfway through, we move to a more focused discussion of Dave's own work and his book, Roadworthy. Both parts include some great poems. And if you have the stamina to make it through this big one, I bet you'll be rewarded with plenty to think about and enjoy. So here we go. Okay, Dave. What book of poetry do you turn to again and again? Volumes that stand out would be um, Richard Sykin's War of the Foxes, Jim Harrison, all of his work, but especially his last book, Dead Man's Float. And then Kevin Gooden, Winter Tenor, has been, again, all of Kevin Gooden's work's really good, but Winter Tenor is just sort of a an inexplicable masterpiece. And even he has commented on you know how it came as a surprise hmm. in an interview I think that would be on my list too I think yes um, also Jack Gilbert hmm. has collected that's a recent find that I just one of the things about Gilbert and some of these others is they're plain spoken they're not into pyrotechnics so much but they're still 
depth and a recent find I always go to through Spokane every year and I go to auntie's bookstore and I always look for their they have a really generous poetry selection um, and I pretty much find some local writer you know local being Eastern Oregon Eastern Washington um, maybe even or Idaho and in this case um, Chris Dombrowski was my find this year he's in Missoula Ragged Anthem is a great book and then of course you know Michael Delp I hope to read one of those poems poem of his in a few minutes or so great. over the graves of horses so so one of the things about these guys these people they're I guess they're all male now that I think about it um, you always know I'm gonna ask about that though. yeah <laughs> well I do have a lot of women writers women poets that I admire so did I mean I guess in this realm of um, really instructional to me, really moving, it must be these men, and they're not necessarily the same. They're right. not doing the same thing, but there's just something in there that is speaking to me. So, And what you admire the most and what you turn to again and again aren't always the same. Sometimes you can really admire a poet, but that's not the book that you find yourself going and taking down off the shelf again. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I'm not, I feel like I'm on some sort of sprint, I mean, to get through as much as I can. I, I feel like I'm getting near the end of my life. And Is that why you're going so fast? I think so, yeah. I'm afraid written. I'm going to miss out on something that's really important. And, you know, that reminds me, of, you know, the Christian Wyman came out with this book recently. I really love his prose, by the way he held radical light and he talks about Mary Oliver who makes this decision she's coming to visit and doing a reading and, and she's carrying around the fairy queen and you know he finds that interesting and it's you know she says well I'm, I only have time for masterpieces now mm -hmm. I only have time for great work I, I don't have enough time to waste on yeah whatever <laughs> so. I felt like that way my whole life though well, you know, the thing is, like you are, like you're reading a seasonal, we're drawn to different things and at different times. And maybe that War and Peace, although it's a great novel, isn't what you need to be reading at that particular moment mm -hmm. in your life. And so, you know, one of the things I'm going to do, I need to do, is reread re Moby Dick. And I read Moby Dick when I was 21 or 2 probably didn't understand anything, mm -hmm. probably missed almost all of it, and I just really want to reread that. So. And I told you, right, about the time I was in the library and that guy came in, in the construction vest, the high-vis. Well, why don't you remind me? So I was sitting by the used books in the library, there's just a little section, and I was sitting staring at the tiny little classic section down on the bottom shelf, and Moby Dick was one of the books in there. And a guy comes in, two guys, it looked like probably construction workers, you know, dirty big boots, hard hats, the vest. One of them ran over, said, oh yeah, it's still here, and grabbed Moby Dick off the shelf. And I said, it's still here. That's, a, that's a big book. And he's like, yeah, I've read it before, I just don't own it. So, you know, he dropped his 50 cents in the slot and headed out with his friend on his lunch break. And cool. thought of you, Dave. Oh yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's me at the dump. You yeah. Get Moby Dick on the seat next to me. Yeah. Okay. I'm gonna ask you a couple more questions. How do you deal with writer's block? When I was first starting out, I was always scrambling for ideas, 
you know, trying to figure trying to figure out ways to jumpstart a poem or and I just don't do that anymore. Would you be nervous if you had a long time and you hadn't written a poem though? Would you feel like that was writer's block? Even if you didn't need to write one, just nothing had come and No. Well, so I did take a long break once. I really felt like poetry was interfering with my, I think I mentioned this earlier, there was a period where I had to, I actually took a break of about four years and I, I just decided, you know what, I'm, I'm done serving my poetry and myself. I'm the editor of Triggerfish and I'm going to serve other writers. And I basically, you know, told God, you know, if poetry and art is an idol for me, then I'm going to give it to you, Lord. And I'm not going to write. I'm, I'm not going to serve my writing. I'm going to just, I'll, I'll keep my hand in poetry as an editor. But, And so I, I told God, give me the green light when it's okay to write again. And so, I mean, I, in answer to your question. But what was the green light? Well, the green light was, I started getting all sorts of, like a, I had an opportunity to start workshopping again. I just started getting a crazy amount of ideas. Mm. <clears throat> I just started, I felt like, you know, I'm just getting all these ideas for poems to write. Mm -hmm. And so that to me seemed like a green light. Um, and then I, I, all of a sudden, you know, it didn't take long before, you know, once I opened the door, I'm workshopping every week. I'm writing poems two or three a week. I'm uh, publishing a book, you know. Mm -hmm. I had an opportunity to publish this Roadworthy. And I, no, I no longer worry about the poems. The poems find me, and I'm just open. I, so part of poetry is really paying attention, and also poetry is reading other works. Mm -hmm. So once I started reading other people's books of poems, then that really opened up especially Robert Bly. I don't know why Robert Bly would particularly inspire me, but as soon as I started reading his collected, you know, I'd never really read him before, actually. Mm -hmm. you know. And then I'm just finding that I was writing, like, tons of poems. Um, and I basically write them at work on my phone. I'm typing them into my phone on the, the note page. Wow. And, uh, you know, or I'm just taking notes. I'm taking mm -hmm. notes, and sometimes that turns into a poem and mm -hmm. whatever. So... This is not an issue for me. Uh, let's see. What's the best compliment you've received on your poetry? Well, I've received a lot of compliments that are pretty overwhelming. Um, but one one really stuck with you. Like okay, so here's a here's satisfying. A, okay, here's a great compliment, and I just I, I this is a poem I wrote um, in our workshop that we attend together. We had a prompt. To write about your your perfect audience, I think yeah. you're, you're actually instigated that. You brought the Kuzer piece, and then Scott Cairns had written a riff off of Ted Kuzer's piece right. about selecting a reader. And so, right around that time, Roadworthy came out, and I I was bringing a I was bringing copies of my book to work to share with the guys at the landfill, and it was a real gamble um, because you know they. I'm sure they regard me as an oddball and, and just kind of weird reading books. I'm not on my phone all the time reading books. Um, and they've seen that and know that I'm rather strange in other ways. So, 
So anyway, I was trying to decide who to, so I, I actually, I brought like uh, four or five copies to work. I gave away three of them. And as an afterthought, there's a long-term employee there. And I thought, well, maybe Dustin will want it. You know, maybe Dustin will want a copy. I'll ask him. So I give him this copy. And then he comes back the next morning. And he has read the entire thing from wow. cover to cover. He, he tells me which four poems he liked the best. Um, mm. And then a little bit later, I learned that, you know, he's lending it to his girlfriend, his brother, his mother. He's, he's like pushing my book on everybody yeah. that he knows. And this is a guy who's a, who's an operator. He, he operated an excavator, um, you know, which is sorting trash on the MRF floor, which is the material recovery facility. That's what that stands for. Um, so he's just basically a heavy equipment operator mm -hmm. who also happened to really, I mean, that's a, there's no greater yeah, compliment. That's than huge. That. It was a surprise. I didn't even think to necessarily set aside a copy for him, but that he read it so quickly, yeah. gave you feedback about yeah. what he liked, yeah. and then told other people about it. That's yeah. kind of huge. I wanted to ask you too, though. Have you has your work ever received an insult that you actually kind of were proud of, <laughs> or someone tried to take well, a jab funny. at something and you, and you thought that well, was kind of fun to hear? Twenty years of workshopping, you know. Um, so, probably fifteen years, I was involved with an online forum workshopping. Um, and it was a board where you would post poems and you would critique other people's work and all of this, these, these threads or conversations would be recorded. And I mean, people were always insulting. So one of the jobs that a moderator had to do was like keep people from personal attack, right? Yeah. You know, come in and say, you can't do that. Or, or you haven't critiqued, you've posted a poem, but you never critiqued anybody. What's up with that? So, but I mean, you know, I think even in my, the last poem in my book, one of my, you know, even even friends would would just rake someone rake their friends over the coals and and when you're posting poems it's always a question of whether it's going to fly you know or what are people going to think mm -hmm. um, how are they going to react well you know I posted a poem the last poem in my book and this good person you know good friend of mine Mal um, just said this is bullshit What's the last poem? Um, we the Despoilers, okay, the yeah. Bloodthirsty. Uh -huh. So so I had titled it something else. Um, what he didn't like was the fact that um, the Army of the Lord, I think I actually, I, I revised it. I said that the Army of the Lord sings peace to such as these. That's how I ended it. But I, I actually was saying that the army of <laughs> forget what it was it, there was some connotation you know the idea that god would actually have opinions and be mm. have his own purposes or will and, mm -hmm. and would like do what he wants with his creation was just really offensive to this guy mm. you know and, and so that's so occasionally so did you when, take that as a compliment I, well i don't know if it, <laughs> i i i well since i really respected and admired mal and his work i I realized that I touched a chord. Um, but maybe a chord you didn't mind touching. Well, in this case, I didn't, yes. Mm -hmm. So so I was willing to take that insult mm -hmm. and, and not necessarily be really, I mean, I was I was certainly, took it seriously, but but I, I also 
realize that there's extenuating circumstances why he would critique it in that way. And then, you know, he didn't normally think call things bullshit. So right. I must have really pissed him off. Okay, yeah. so you got, got a rise out of him, and yeah. that's not always such a bad thing. No, no, that's that's the way critique should go. Better have an angry reader than a bored reader. Right. <laughs> well, you know, indifference is the worst possible yeah. response to poetry. So I agree. Um, would you rather talk like Yoda or breathe like Darth Vader for the rest of your life? <laughs> Definitely breathe like Darth Vader. I probably do already. So. I think I'd pick Yoda, though. That's kind of poetic. <laughs> well, you know, to have to say everything like backwards would yeah. be really awful. Yeah. Um, do you have any questions that you want to ask me? Well, so one of the one of the things that I really want to know, and I'd kind of like to talk about and address, is what do you think poetry is for? What work does it do? Why do we love it so much? What what what's its purpose? I mean, yikes, that's a big one. I know, not easy. I've thought about it, but you you probably right. So it's obviously a question that's interesting to me, and part of the reason why this is episode. 40 something of a podcast talking about poetry is because I wanted to explore that. Just shoot from the hip. Yeah. I think, what does poetry do? I think it gives us a way of seeing. I think by putting into language, to see something in language that's so perfect. To see reality reflected in those beautiful language in that beautiful language gives you a way to think about it and gives you a way to see it again, makes you pay attention. I think metaphor is powerful. So I think poetry helps us think further and more about things that we wouldn't get to if we just thought in prose. It's not just reason and logic, it's art. And so it has some transcendent element to it that I feel like can take you higher than an essay on the same topic. I don't know, it's hard to explain because I don't totally understand, like why does rhyme work this way in our minds? Why does repetition have this power? Like I was reading that um, Richard Haas poem with the blackberry, blackberry, blackberry at mm -hmm. the end. And I was just thinking, why? Like what is the deal with saying the word blackberry three times? I mean, it took my breath away. Or reading it 13 yeah or, <laughs> yeah <laughs> right. but I don't know why what's going on in in a human brain that repetition like that can just drive something through your heart like right through your mind to your heart so I don't understand how poetry works well but I love it and I want and I know that it has been powerful in my life partly maybe because it's so easy to have it stick in your mind it's hard to memorize a paragraph of Tolstoy but it's not hard to remember a stanza or a snippet of a really good poem and have it kind of live with you and right. stay in your mind. But I also like that it does something like, I guess my mind's going toward political poetry and how much I tend to feel like disappointed when poetry tries to be too political. And I think, um, I think it was in, what was the book you read? Oh, is that Pruder's book? Right, why poetry? Why poetry? He has a chapter I really like on political poetry, and he said, you know, poetry can be at the meeting about the political situation, but it needs to always be kind of wandering over to the window and looking out and also seeing something else 
interested in something else that's more timeless than whatever the political moment is rousing up in people's words. So I don't know. That's a hard question, Dave. That's a big, fat topic. <laughs> well, I think the fact that, you know, we have trouble understanding why it works or how it works on us is actually a good thing. And that that's part of the fun of poetry is puzzling through that mm -hmm. or trying to puzzle through it. And sometimes you just don't... Sometimes I'll read a poem, and I like you did with the Black Bear, you know, um, Meditation at Lagunitas, mm -hmm. um, and I won't understand why it works, but I know that it's poetry. And so it isn't a question of whether it's really a poem or not. It's just a question of why, how, how is it working on me, and why is it working on me that way? And um, and I think that those are actually, you know, the mysterious ones that you're puzzling over probably have more going on than the ones that are just you know poems one of the great things about poetry is that it can be and do anything um, it's probably unlike prose it, it has more versatility to be and do all sorts of things and, and do all sorts of work so mm -hmm. you know there's jokes and there's puzzles and there's riddles and there's limericks and silly stuff and mm -hmm. you know one of the things that I was telling to somebody earlier was that, you know, poetry is the least important thing, but it's also the most important thing. And I mean, it also is important that in my mind, that 60% of scripture, you know, if God's going to give us a book mm -hmm. of writing of sacred writing and hand it to us and, you know, over two millennia at least, or four, um, you would expect this to be pretty yeah. pretty substantial stuff, you know. But but sixty percent of it is in poetry. So that says to the other thing I think is that you know we have two hemispheres in our brain, and one deals with facts and what we know, and the other deals with the unknown. And it's between it's the tension between those two things that gives us the computational power and mm -hmm. the thinking power that we have. You know, it's just so I think poetry is working on the right brain and and the mysterious and the, the chaos and unknown and mm -hmm. it seems like if you mentioning the large percentage of scripture that's poetry i feel like it's yeah. clear that we were created to receive and to make poetry as something that's a really important human endeavor it's seems like it i think it's very comparable to music I just have never understood or appreciated music. So that's like a big dull area in my life. And I think what poetry is for me, for a lot of other people, it's music and song lyrics that do a very, very similar thing. Stay with you, you know, are stuck in your head, give you a way of seeing, give you a way of expressing something. And then the mystery too of why certain vibrations of sound waves go in our ears and pierce our hearts. You know, there's kind of that mystery of music like there is with poetry. So I think those two things are very comparable, just an all important, like you said, it's, it's not important. We could completely survive without it. It's not right. important for survival, but we can see that it's obviously deeply important to humankind to be creating and listening to music and poetry. You know, the ancients thought of poems as flowers. Um, 
I think the Greek word for anthology is bouquet. Hmm. And and then that's fine. A bouquet you know, of poems. So if you think of a poem as a flower, it's it's something beautiful. It's something um, not necessarily necessary, but also gives you know pleasure and be- adds beauty to our lives. Um, yeah. Um, you know, Whitman kind of plays on that with leaves of grass. He's going even more humble with it. Or, or you know, you've got Shelley talking about it being the unacknowledged legislator of the world, which I think is too grandiose, you know. And Auden, you know, it's a way to break bread with the dead. Did um, he say art is a way to break bread with the dead? Probably. Yeah. But, mm-hmm. you know, being a poet, I'm sure he he was really thinking about poetry. So... Bread is a mundane thing, but it's a nourishing thing. It's, I like that. I like the idea of poetry being something that bridges the gap between the future, the present, and the past. Um, yeah, it lets two minds come together in time, even though their bodies are separated by however many centuries there yeah. be. Yeah, I mean, we're, we're able to communicate with one another. So, um, which, you know... I, I actually have a poem, Would you know, I'm wondering if you would mind if I read it. Um, so I, I will ha- never stand in the way of someone reading a poem, well, so, ever. So this has to do with that. Did um, you bring it? Yes. All I right, let's a copy. do it. So, so one of the goals I have, you know, and, and don't laugh at this, but... You know, I, I'm already laughing. I'm so disobedient. <laughs> well, I, have, I have three collections in mind. Um, Oh, yeah. Roadworthy that I've written. I've also written a book called Holiness of Landfills, which I'm still working on, haven't published yet. Um, but a third idea that I have is a book related to the city of God. I'm trying to wrap my head around that. I just find it a fascinating topic to try to yeah. imagine what that might look like. So this poem would be from that collection. And it's called uh, The Past Reads Us. Um, and I also wrote it at the landfill. So this was something I was... Re- I read a book called Posthumous Keats um, in at the landfill. You know, so mm-hmm. some of this crazy stuff I read is just arcane. Uh, Stanley Plumley wrote a book about Keats. Um, and so called- biography... Well, yeah, it was a. I think it was particular. It's 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 part literary criticism, part biography, um, discussing Keats as someone who you know. Keats is a sad story because he died so young of tuberculosis, but he also desperately longed to be an English poet in the canon, mm. and he knew that he was, or he suspect you know, my you know my name is a is writ on water um he knew that he wasn't going to attain that because he was being cut short his life was being cut short so anyway reading that book inspired this Mm. um i read about dying keats posthumous keats a way he grew to think of himself and his unfulfilled promise of work while still living during the time it took to be consumed all life love lasting work he thought name writ in water etc cut off dying dead in essence before he died because he'd nursed his mother and younger brother through illness and death 
He had no illusions of what was coming. Then barely 25, it came. I wondered if somewhere before we go there, the past pulls a book off the shelf, is reading us like we read them. Not because we are greater, but for the news perhaps, or as a testament to who we were, who we became after them. Do they recognize their style and their words in us, like a son or daughter adopts a parent's mannerisms? Just like you might put all, pull off the shelf something written a hundred or two or a, thou, or a thousand years ago, dead poets may have ways of reading forward, even beyond us, because time no longer matters. And why wouldn't they care what's going to happen, or be thought or said even more than what was said in their past? Because in some sense, somewhere, everything's already happened while it's waiting to happen. Perhaps the past reads us like we read them, to become intimate with us so we might have something to talk about when we meet, and for joy in the understanding of a torch, become candle, become lantern, li lantern light, become LED, winding forward through the dark or fog or blizzard in the mind of God. Everyone knows that at some point, after enough time passes, age ceases to be relevant anymore. All that will matter then is seeing and the light to see by. It wouldn't surprise me that Keats still writes, whom some suggest, had he lived, might have surpassed, <clears throat> might have surpassed Shakespeare, this son of a stableman. Hmm. Well, so one of my ideas of the city of God is that it's has a very large library, you know, mm. Borges mm -hmm. thought this way. I mean, I don't know. Yeah. I, I, it's gotta. I think, I think that there's a lot of books and I, I suspect, you know, when you, one of the heartbreaking things for me is I've come across a lot of poets who never publish mm. and don't even, you know, I don't know why they write. Um, I mean, I met so many people online like this who are very accomplished their students, their reading, and their writing, and they're really, really good. Um, they're as good as anything I'm reading published, but they are not even seeking publication. So they're writing in the dark, mm. and they're just keeping it. I mean, you know, they were posting online, but they weren't publishing in any conventional way. So I, I can't help but think that these people you know, and then there's Hopkins and Dickinson, right? You know, they they were they were saved from oblivion. But mm -hmm. I just think that God has a big file. Um, there are books, and I don't think any of this stuff gets lost. Mm -hmm. And so, and I I, I think I wouldn't surprise me that people were reading reading things. You know, Keats has been dead for over two hundred years, and or about two hundred years, and you know he's. Uh, could be reading Roadworthy for all I know. Probably not, but whatever. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe that'll be in the library for someday. He'd be like, what is a truck? I yeah, true. I guess that would be Roads? hard. When I told someone that I think my tombstone is going to read, all, all I wanted was more time to read, she said, <laughs> well, how about this? Maybe in the city of God you can keep reading and learning you want to <laughs> I would think <laughs> and so. that was a great comfort well eternity is a long time yeah so. okay how about let's switch over 
end this question and answer session and switch yeah. over to talking about Roadworthy. Hi, Dave, and thanks for meeting me today to talk about your book and poetry. Well, thank you. I'm honored to be here. Really appreciate your inviting me on. Yeah, we Again. talked in February about Hopkins, and ever since, I've been looking forward to getting back together, and this time talking about your own book. Um, Roadworthy, which we both have a copy here in front of us. Um, why don't we just start with a poem, and then we can go on and talk a little bit more about you as a poet, and your themes, your background. So let's jump in with some poetry. Sounds good. Okay, so unloading at the Dollar Tree in Ellensburg, Washington. This store is unusually located downtown amid stately old brick buildings, parallel parked my steers and hood block a crosswalk. Early morning, late fall, 33 degrees, clear, and from quiet leaf-strewn streets, I feel a safe, hot apple cidery nostalgia. Comforting that a tiny eddy of a town, a middle America joy, would rather die than suburb or strip mall, yet somehow survives. Unloading, but during a pause in the racket, I catch her saying to someone in the building, I woke up at four this morning, turned on Animal Planet, and watched giraffes fight with their necks. Man, you should have seen the way they swung those necks. You know that this podcast is largely focused on everyday poetry, the work it does in our everyday lives, poems about everyday things, and I thought you might have a lot to say about that, Dave. Yeah, I, I have probably too much to say about it because one of my big struggles as a poet has been how to incorporate or deal with poetry as an avocation amidst my other vocations as husband, father, business owner, or truck driver, or, you know, whatever. Um, to some degree, you have to grapple with what poetry is and what it does. And I guess for me, uh, as someone who's always, well, you know, I didn't start writing poetry until I became a business owner. And, you know, when you're, you're driving a truck for 16 hours a day, you don't have a lot of mental space or um, energy or time to have any kind of aspirations toward art or writing. Or There is time to think, um, which was one reason I chose truck driving, um, being alone and thinking and the adventure of a new scene every day. Um, and, you know, this book deals with some of those adventures. But I actually became a, a poet after I was a truck driver, or after that job. And, you know, being a business owner is equally stressful, perhaps, in a different way, but there's a little more flexibility. I had actually, actually had some time, and more time than I'd ever had. And so I after thinking I was a writer and primarily a fiction writer earlier, um, I 
had time to write poems. I had time to do something in short verse. had time to think meditatively. Well, so, so one of the ways that I use poetry or that poetry uses me is as a way to meditate, a way to process and think through things, a way to let language work through me to represent beauty or interesting things that are hard to understand yeah. you know and then lastly I guess I it, it's a coping mechanism um, especially in the job that I have now which is incredibly tedious and um, what is the job you have now well the job I have now is um, driving around in circles at a landfill hauling trash up and down a hill in a trailer um, mm -hmm. and dumping it to be buried and so, you know, I actually, you know, I, I bet you that I have more time to write and read now than I've ever had in my life because I use the downtime while I'm being loaded um, to, to read and write in my truck. Mm -hmm. So I'm, I'm using my iPhone, you know, and I'm taking notes, I'm writing poems, um, I'm reading hundreds of thousands of pages yeah. in my 12 years that I've been there. Um, well, if you have to have a job where you're going around in circles and you know if it feels somewhat mindless to you it's better to have one you can read yes read and write and think while you're doing it that well so one of my goals starting out after college was that I wanted my mind to be my own and I wanted to be able to think my own thoughts and I didn't you know like if I having a degree in English had I chosen to be a high school teacher or had I some sort, working for a press um, or advertising agency or a lawyer or whatever, the various things that you could do with an English mm -hmm. degree, you know, as a jumping off point towards a career, none of those things really were going to allow me to have the life of the mind and have an interior life that I wanted as a, what I thought would be a fiction writer. And I also knew that I wasn't going to be able to make money or a living from my writing. So it was always going to have to be this thing that was on the side. And one of my struggles has really been to incorporate and balance that with my other things, with my other duties and my other responsibilities. And, you know, not all of them are duties. It's just mm -hmm. I envy people that can be artists and writers who somehow make that work in their life as a vocation that, Okay, so that's one thing I was going to ask you about. One of the themes that I see in this book and your work in general is a tension between your writing and what you're, and your job, basically. Right. Yeah. But I sometimes wonder, is the tension that those things, and what do you think, those things fight against each other? Like you're wanting to write makes it harder to be driving truck in circles at the dump. And driving a truck in circles with a dump is hard when you're wanting to be an artist. Are they pulling against each other? Or do you actually think that the jobs that you have done that show up in Roadworthy and that you're writing about for your future books are the source of your art and that it wouldn't exist without them? So I would say yes and no. And so 
No, you have to choose A or B. No, I don't. Are because, they pulling against well, so, each other? Or? So when I was, uh, let me let me answer it both okay. ways, okay? And, and in two different times in my life. Okay. When I was driving a truck, I couldn't write. I didn't have the time or energy. Um, like when I was really out on the road. I did actually write. You know, when I wrote these Dollar Tree poems, I was on the road and I was writing poems because I'd already developed a discipline of writing poems in short mm-hmm. verse in the midst of a working day. So I, I didn't, but I didn't know how to do that before. I thought I was a fiction writer, you know. But, but in my, when I was a business owner, I owned the coffee cottage. Um, I feel like that I didn't juggle things well. And I, I neglected my roles as a parent and a husband and a business owner. You know, those things suffered because I became so focused on poetry. I don't know. You know, I could be wrong about that. Because owning a coffee house has some pleasures, and one of them is to be an artistic light in the community. Um, okay, so during light. your coffee cottage years, the tension there was, was tension that they- there. Pulled against each other. Family life and your job pulled yes. against your writing. Well, you know, five kids, young kids. Right, so um, partly the stage. Just life. busy, 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 mm-hmm. you know. I was, I, I'd say that I was out of balance. And maybe even making an idol of art and poetry. Because that's just sort of my sensibility. But, it, but I could never really dig into it. And, and so that's where the tension was not good. I mean, I, I, you know, who knows, you know, when it's all said and done. Okay. So what about now? Like when you're driving circles with a truck full of trash. Exactly. Is so, that? So it's a coping real? mechanism mm-hmm. now. Okay. So, so what it does is it trains. Okay. So when you're in the midst of tedium and bored and, you know, you've got to put post-its on the window to block the clock because you're Xeroxing mm-hmm. documents all day, that's the sort of tedium that will kill you. So one way to battle that is to pay more attention. Yeah. And and I'm in a landfill which is a pretty ugly, dirty, filthy, toxic environment. Um, but I but my so in an attempt to find beauty and holiness there and I have to pay a lot more attention. I can't just look at the surface ugliness. I have to really dig deep and I have to really so the more attention to detail that you pay, the more you see. And right. The more you see, the more you, you, you see beyond the surface stuff to some of those other things. And so, so your poetic eye and mind help you approach the job seeing interest and... And I can do my job in my sleep with yeah. my eyes closed. Yeah. So I have the ability to focus my attention elsewhere. Yeah. And so I'm reading and writing in my truck and I'm looking around and paying attention. You know, I mean... This is an ideal picture that I'm painting yeah. here. It's I know, quite, you're making me kind of jealous, actually. It's not quite as wonderful. <laughs> I like when you told me you were reading Dante's Inferno as you drove around in circles. In well, the it's, that it's, was just there's no cognitive dissonance there <laughs> at all. It totally adds. <laughs> okay, so someday I really hope you can read a bunch of dump poems, but let's try to get back to the truck driving <laughs> poems in this book, Roadworthy. So what about that theme of wilderness? Are there any poems in this book that you think are a perfect example of that? Um, yeah, I'd say that um, probably that last poem at the in the first section, the last Dollar Tree poem, 
is... Yes, I wanted to do that one. Uh, let's see, what is it called again? Page uh, 36, the Sunny River Bank. Yeah, the Sunny River Bank at Dollar at the Dollar Tree Distribution Center in Ridgefield, Washington. Um, okay. Check tier near the bank reaches high to grapple the blue. I exchanged one locked room for another under the sun, didn't I? Thinking I was moving forward in time, cafe for cab, I am probably looking at this all wrong. The bird is telling me, telling me. Black winged shoulders notched blood red, below red leaks hot gold light. Check tear, sung among cattails, abutted against his concrete lament, exiled, chastised, surrounded, calling my long gone far away home. And underneath this song, this prophecy like pillars is smoke for a garden, fire for a city, somewhere behind that blue. So yeah, I'd say that that poem epitomizes something that I discovered after I finished writing this book. And, and this book, you know, I began writing about trucking after I took over the cottage. So that first 10 years of being in Newburgh was when I really started to kind of look back at my trucking experience and use that for material. Um, and this, the Dollar Tree poems were written after the 10 years of me managing the cottage, you know, my, I stepped away because I needed to take outside work and Sally stepped in as the manager and we still continued to own it for another 11 years. But, but I, you know, I went to work for Schneider delivering Dollar Tree in Oregon, Washington, Idaho, and was gone for a week at a time, one day home. And so that was a wilderness so, so basically, you know, the way I would characterize this is that each poem is a wilderness and each section is a wilderness, you know, of spiritual autobiography and processing and coping and, you know, whatever it is that I do. Um, these are, these are periods of, um, you know, dry spiritual periods or or difficult spiritual periods. Uh, you know, this book is a catalog of wildernesses. Um, yeah, you said I had. This is this book is island hopping from one wilderness or spiritual desert to another, and that made me wonder what is what's the opposite of wilderness? Is it home? Definitely, yeah. Okay. And and probably. Shalom. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Everything Home being in balance. Yeah. I mean, you know, if, if harmony, unity, balance, uh, sinlessness, um, you know, ordered loves rather than disordered loves, uh, <laughs> the list could go on. It's like, you know, so wilderness is the life we live on, live in here, you know, as pilgrims and aliens. And so, yeah, I think, I think that that's one of my obsessions. Well, one of my, you know, I have three basic obsessions, and one of them is the tension between vocation and avocation, or, you know, work. Mm -hmm. uh, one of them would be God, and one of them would just be the natural world. I love the natural world.
the world. And so one of the things that you see in Roadworthy a lot is birds as a yes. metaphor for spirit. And There's liberty. even one on the cover. Yes. I noticed. Yeah. When you were mentioning that trilogy of God, truck, or work, and nature, I noticed your cover kind of captured that. There's a broken down truck, a mysterious bird black yeah. in the sky, and then these kinds of clouds are the ones in the Bible picture books that God's light <laughs> beams would be shining down out of, you know? So it seems like it's all there. And in the poem you just read as well, with the bird, the despair of being far from home, but then that glimpse of the city somewhere beyond that blue. So there aren't very many lines in this poem, but it kind of boils it down, doesn't it? I love yeah. this one. Yeah, I, I worked I worked so hard on this poem. Um, I mean, it wasn't something that came very easily. Mm -hmm. You know, you were in on workshop with that and trying to revise it down to get... Yeah. It, it was one of those poems where, you know, I was frustrated, always frustrated with it. It never seemed to arrive. And I think I got it closer. My uh, publisher was really gracious um, because I was making lots of last-minute edits. I, I had about a year to really do intense revision. And, and you know, the other thing, stupid thing, you know, if I'm going to confess something, is that this book is a product of like 20 years. So it's frustrating that, you know, a person can work so hard and still not get something right and have that long to do it, a whole year to revise it before publication, 20 years to write it before that. You just needed the deadline. And I was going to say, I think <laughs> you picked the right version. How Good. it shows up in this book is excellent. I'm so I hope you're not thinking about that glad anymore. You like, I'm glad, glad, I, yeah, I, think glad you I got it right. So in these two Dollar Tree poems that we've read, I see those themes that are so intriguing of God, truck, nature. But what I came away from reading this book with was definitely, as I mentioned to you before we started recording, a sense of the terrifying fear that at time is involved in driving a big rig truck through mountains and ice and other crazy drivers. And so I basically don't pass a big rig truck anymore without trying to peek at who's driving and feeling some sort of empathy and awe that there are people who can withstand the stress of doing that for so many years. I love your poem in here about all the things that scare you, but I don't want to read that one today. I'm going to save that as a teaser so that people will buy this book. I think it's worth the book, buying the book just for that one poem. What's it called? What scares you? Um, question, what's, what scares what you scares the most? Me, yeah. yeah. But let's read back-to-back -back runs in the Rockies because I think that some of that danger is built into that one as well. Well, so just to kind of like... Put, give a perspective on this. I would say that driving a truck, whether it's long haul or short line, probably more more those than like these local guys that never leave town, um, is 99% tedium and 1% terror. So so it's not all terror. Um, no. It's mostly tedium. And but we need to mention that you're driving before GPS. That's true. In some of the no poems, you get to a bridge that you cannot go under. Like the clearance yeah. is too low. Yeah. What do you do? I mean, there are just so many tricky situations, not to mention people wanting to get you in trouble all the time for anything you do wrong. So 
So it just, I started to feel the claustrophobia of that 1% of the time that is terror of driving. And I had never really thought of that before. So this is a good one. Okay, so back-to-back runs in the Rockies. Sunflower seeds work best. Never knew whether by some property or the act of splitting and spitting the halves out. Cracking or lowering the window helps, especially when cold or freezing. Coffee, cigarettes help, but not really. Loud music, jumping blues, rockabilly the best, or books or sermons on tape, but these only reveal how much you miss, and thinking is the last thing you want to do. Icy roads, blizzards, except for the soft, fluffy flakes that come at you like somnolent galaxies, or screaming wind which rocks or pushes the trailer all over the road is good. Soft rain and swishing wipers, bad. Hard rain that makes it hard to see is okay. Lots of curves or traffic help, but are no guarantee. Driving too fast for conditions helps, sometimes not. And of course the old standby, slapping your face hard, repeatedly. And if you really have to, stopping the truck to get rid of coffee then lapping the rig once or twice, again, most effective in sub-zero. Then there's periodic screaming to get the blood going, talking to oneself, bouncing in the air ride seat to music. If absolutely all else fails, as last resort, since this can be dangerous, a 10-minute nap over the wheel, on the shoulder, close to the road, leave radio on, squelch up high. If you oversleep soon enough, you want to hear the roar of the truck going by and reel with the wind of his passing, or hear him holler an offer for aid in case you might need it, which you would to wake you, not because you broke down. Hallucinations mean it's time to stop, proceed at own risk. Trucks jackknifing up to a door at you doing 60, or leaping or crawling shadows across the road mean shut down to any wise person, but I usually wouldn't. Sleep, the enemy, at long last, the welcomest friend. Wow, that's pretty concentrated terror. At least that's how I read it. (laughs) So, you know, I was going from Denver to Grand Junction, which means I'm, I'm going over those mountains, you know, at least once or twice a week. And you just basically, the weather doesn't ever, this job didn't take breaks for weather. We would just, whatever, you know, you'd throw chains on to get over the passes or, you know, and then the the worst thing is you have to make a judgment call. Do I chain up or do I not? It's a pain in the ass. You know, you stop, you have to pull over and throw chains on. Mm -hmm. And especially when you're driving in the middle of the night, it's dark, it's cold. I remember when I first started learning to chain, so I was using a flashlight and sticking it in my teeth and, you know, trying to see what I was doing. But basically, once I got good at it, you're doing it by feel. You know exactly how to do it. I mean, I remember one time I pulled over and the truck started to slide, even though I was stopped. Oh you know, God. it started, started moving with the wheels braked. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just like... No, well, that's in in this poem. It's so funny that stopping to take a nap is one of the most dangerous options. Like pulling over and stopping and napping is well, almost more dangerous than the, to just roll down the windows and slap yourself and 
keep going. Yeah, one of the dangers of, I mean, what I was thinking in the poem, the reason it's dangerous is you'll sleep and you won't wake up, mm -hmm. and then you'll miss, you won't be there in the morning when you're supposed to be there. So, I mean, I remember the first time I actually ever, this was like right after I got the job, and I wasn't used to living in Colorado. I just, we'd lived in Utah, and I was driving propane straight trucks, which are small, smaller trucks, dangerous in a different way, um, because they had bald tires, the guy was really cheap and didn't want to buy tires, whatever. The first time I, I dealt with snow and ice, you know, like in a tractor trailer rig, I was coming back from Grand Junction, and I was about to head over the last hill into the front range, and there was a freak storm in September, and all the, everybody's going sideways. It was just sort of one of those sudden freakish things in September that you don't expect. Yeah. And it was just getting dark. And, you know, I'm going over the last hill or two before I, you know, I'd gone over the major passes, Vale and Eisenhower, but this was the little one before you get into, you start to head down into Denver. And cars and trucks are all going sideways because it was just real slippery. And, and so, you know, I'm, chaining up in the middle of the highway, cars are just sliding towards your rig and they make, you know, one thing that really impressed me was this one truck cared enough about a car to, to hook a chain up to it and pull him up wow. with him. And I, I got my chains on and I'm, I'm just maneuvering around all these sliding cars to get past them so I'm out, so I'm out of danger, right? Because you just feel like a car's gonna hit you. And, and then I'm in trouble <laughs> as right. a truck driver. You're, you're in trouble, you know, truck driver's always a plane. Well, this book is full of terror and God and nature and trucks, <laughs> but you said you brought a couple poems that aren't in here, some of your more recent work that you'd be willing to read today. So I'd love to hear some of that yeah, if you're I, up for it. Okay. I thought I would read, a, so, so I have basically three books that I know about that I'm going to I have Roadworthy, which is published, but then I have a couple manuscripts in mind additionally. You know, I've, I have been writing work for, like I say, the last 20-something years, and I have, I have more than one manuscript. And so Roadworthy got published. But one, one funny thing about this that I can say is that when I submitted to my publisher, they preferred my landfill manuscript over Roadworthy. So your first one's the trucking, and first your second one, one's the landfill. It is and my, that. yeah, it's a, mm -hmm. it's, a ser it's a collection of prose poems, primarily, based on landfill work. Um, yeah, and I've read several of those and love them, and like you mentioned, there are more people in those. Yes. I love people. Yeah. I love meeting these folks. So, so I'm dealing with customers, yeah. and I'm dealing with coworkers, and just the, the, the physical landscape of it, and my interior life. Those are the things that are running through that. So, so this poem that I'm going to read, is it's a prose poem called Cunningham Relates a Dream He Had Last Night, and I'm basically... Quoting my foreman, Cunningham is my foreman, okay. um, which... Is he going to like this poem? I think he would. Okay. I think he, I mean, I think, you know, so one of the things I did with Roadworthy is I, I actually did a little mini reading at work, and I handed out a bunch of books, and people knew that I was weird, 
but they didn't know. How weird. They, they <laughs> I think they suspected I was a writer. I, I know that for a fact that the ones who know me the best knew I, I'm a writer. You know, mm-hmm. they know that I'm writing. They, they even know that I'm writing about them. Yeah. <laughs> so they, once they saw this book, it was like they were on notice. Okay, mm-hmm. Dave is listening to what we say. Aww. And he may actually be taking notes. Yeah. You know, and I think they suspected that before, but they didn't realize it. But but quite to the degree that they mm-hmm. do now. But anyway, so this one is a some of my work. I mean, I, I guess yes, I'm dealing with real people, and sometimes I'm quoting them, but it doesn't mean that I'm not working to craft a piece of art, right? So it's just you have to lean into whatever your weird obsessions and whatever your weird methodology is and in my case it's paying attention to people at work and sometimes quoting them so here we go this is this is Cunningham relates a dream he had last night after work I took a walk with my daughter in the woods behind our house on the way back I could see deer prints inside my prints and I showed them to her then a little bit further on there were cat prints inside those and I started to get a little worried. We got back to the house and I got my pistol and I headed out to the back porch and the cougar was there staring at me. I took aim, but I couldn't get it to work. He motions with his hands clasped like he's aiming a pistol and shaking it around, looking at his hands frustrated. Finally, I got one off and hit the cat in the nose and it was bleeding down its face, so I knew I hit it. But it just kept standing there in the yard, staring me down. I tried to shoot it again to kill it, but the pistol wouldn't fire. Then I woke up thinking, damn, I didn't get my cat. Then he laughed and said, I often have fishing dreams that are frustrating like that, where I'm having a great fight with a Chinook, then twang, and it's gone. I could see this last part was covering up something that had been shown and then quickly hidden. Something about young daughters, footprints within prints, guns that won't fire, and fierce creatures that can't or won't die. Mm. So, so one of the one of the reasons I wanted to read this piece was to talk about a phenomena that happens to people that are working on poems and working on books and. And then they come across somebody who um, has written their poem but done it ten times better. Or, you know, it's, it's, it's you recognize your own poem in somebody else's work, mm-hmm. but they've done it so masterfully that you begin to wonder, why do I bother? <laughs> well, so I think, I think everybody has their own quirky, idiosyncratic, you know, voice. But I also think that there are geniuses and masters, and then there's everybody else. And so, and you know, sometimes, well, whatever. It could just be that my opinion of Michael Delft and his poem. Mm-hmm. Um, I know what you mean, though. That you. has absolutely happened that I read a poem and I think that's the poem I've always thought I should write, except I never would have done it that well. So I get it. Well, what's interesting, okay, so I think it would be interesting for me to read um, 
Michael Delp's poem Blood Trail yeah. from his from his book Over the Graves of Horses, which I I mean I have about five or six books that I go to to see how it's done. Mm. Um, and and this book by Michael Delp was one of them. And not to sit there and self-deprecate and say my my poems nothing. I thought it would be fun to share an example of a of two poems that are similar and yeah. doing similar things and I just think he does it really well so anyway this is Blood Trail uh, by Michael Delp and he um, dedicates it to Jack Driscoll we moved through the swamp for hours our hands close to the leaves dead fern the hiss of the lantern near our faces following the blood trail twice the blood mixed with light rain blood the color of autumn. The third time we picked it up, we stood still, as still as the swamp, and listened to the deer run up a small stream, lunging, falling three times. We found her half-submerged, her eyes caught in thin strands of lantern light. She came heavy out of the water, then my friend went in with his knife, slid her from neck to tail, slid his hands up inside her, pulling the entrails free, her lungs swinging away in a wide arc, just enough light from the lantern to make them glisten like a swath of stars in the sky. We pulled her back into the stream, air and body heat steaming from the hole in her side. When we threaded my web belt through a cut in each tendon, pulled her out through mud and leaves, a half mile at least, like she was riding the sled she, she made with her own body. I kept remembering how, when he cut her open, I saw something rise up out of her chest. A vapor, mist, apparition, call it some fleeting glimpse of my daughter or her spirit. When I came home to her in the early morning, I found her deep under the leaves of her bed and pulled them back. She lay face up, a sound coming from her mouth. She was gritting her teeth, grinding them on some strange dream substance. I stood over her, touched her to make sure the spirit was still inside her body, then bent close, pretended my hand was a kind of spoon, and began feeding her dreams. For the rest of the night, her mouth moved and I kept feeding. Each swallow and her body went leaping off into the woods I couldn't see. She always came back, settled into her little girl's body and curved against me as if we were lying on a raft floating through the swamp both of us listening for men following a blood trail toward us. To calm her, I told her how their lanterns would surely falter, how they would lose themselves in the darkness. The swamp would take them in and we would sit under a black sky, let our dreams drift back, listen to them circling closer, their hearts beating in exact time with ours. Wow. That's an amazing, strange, ominous, brave poem. Yeah. Um, so, you know, how is this poem like mine? Yeah, I see the... And I wanted to ask you about that because I see the daughters, the, the hunting men and their daughters, okay? And a lot of complexity going on between the man who's killing the beast or dreaming about it or really doing it 
and the daughter that he has and is trying to protect. So what do you see similar in those two poems that made this be one of those times where you were like, oh, Delp, you're stealing my poem here. Yes. Um, well, you know, my poem and this poem are, are not necessarily doing exactly the same thing, but it's, it's kind of like um, what my poem is doing is, is almost one-dimensional. And what his poem is doing is like acting in four or five or six dimensions, you know, whatever those other two are that we don't know about, if the fourth is time. I mean, you know, this, this poem is just operating on so many more levels than mine. Um, one of the things that I noticed that's different about it is that if, if Michael Delp is writing about himself, I mean, I don't know how, how a poet writes a poem like this. I don't know where that comes from, how they even come up with these the idea of how to do this with you know if there's any autobiography at all in this um he's not like any hunter i know not that the hunters and i know a lot of hunters i'm i'm not a hunter myself but i just know so many men that hunt elk and mm -hmm. or or everything you know like i used to know a guy who travels the world and he's a taxidermist he worked at the landfill and, and he's not writing seven dimensional poems he's about it. not no um Every other word is the F word for him. Okay. So he's kind of almost inarticulate, but he's really, really bright. So um, so this is not like any hunter I know. One of the amazing things is that he does a reversal where the prey becomes his daughter. And, and he becomes, instead of the hunter, he's the father and the protector. Mm -hmm. and, and he's somehow this dream is food that's protecting or, or nourishing or saving his daughter and he's co he's consoling the daughter who's a deer and saying it's okay they won't find us I mean it's just so bizarre it's it's so surreal and and there are just so many mysterious things it's almost uh, it's almost it's it's a totally feminine way to approach this topic so the hunter the and the male becomes a woman almost I mean, almost, and maybe you know, it's a feminine way to approach it, but to me, the poem looks masculinity in the face without flinching, and that's part of what I think adds to its. I said it was honest, and I said it was ominous, and I think it's both of those things. This man who's been killing and slitting a female animal, which he calls she over and over uh -huh, and over, out right. in the dark night, right. comes creeping into his daughter's room, right. and everyone reading the poem is like, oh no, we know how this story goes. <laughs> and he goes in, and then this surreal, strange dream feeding happens. So I guess in that way he becomes like a woman feeding, feeding the child. Like, I mean, I, you know, I get the sense that there's a motherly aspect to this. So there's so many reversals. The hunter, you know, covered with gore comes into his daughter's bedroom and is just being really motherly toward her and, and maybe fatherly too or in a you know nurturing, a, nurturing but I think protecting. it's specifically masculine because the mother would not I mean there's women hunt but it's a much smaller likelihood that a mother will be out in a wet ditch with an animal and some other guys you know cutting it up and then come home and be with her daughter 
it seems so he's doing both but it's hard to picture like a woman writing a poem about that and also doing both it seems like there's what he is inside the home and then there's what he's capable of not in the home but in a greater sphere where he's using his strength and his skills and his and leaving a blood trail basically out in the woods i don't know i there's vulnerability and, yeah. and, and then there's the vulnerability of the father with the daughter who you know so getting back to my poem you know basically what i was doing what i compared to this one dimensionally you know is is just showing this vulnerability in a manly man who's like mm -hmm. let me shoot you know let me take my trophy let me shoot this threatening predator right and you know but it's in a dream which can't be controlled and it won't die and so there's this inability to do what a father's supposed to do which is protect his family right and from predators and right. and to provide you know one of the features of hunting is providing mm. meat and so so there's you know and and then basically once your daughter becomes a teen she starts to move away from the parents and from the father's protection and, and goes out into the world. And fathers, most fathers are pretty nervous about that. Um, right. I know I've been. So So it, it's wonderful in your poem that that's coming up in his subconscious and that he slips up and then tries to cover up like, oh yeah, this is just how, I have dreams about all kinds of hunting, losing fish, losing deer, you know, this isn't a big deal. But what makes your poem not one-dimensional is that you are writing it about somebody else. You noticed yeah. someone telling this story and that flicker of psychology or that flicker of it meaning something deeper. There was communication. And, right, yeah. and you saw that it could be art and you made it. So it wasn't about yourself and your own dream and your own daughter, which still could have been a cool poem. But what I think makes yours have that extra dimension and what made me really love it when I read it workshop was that you, like you said, as a poet, you're trying to just pay really close attention every day, wherever you are. And one of the things you have to pay attention to is these people, you didn't choose to hang out with them. Mm -hmm. They're at your job, but you're noticing, like maybe nobody else there would have heard that guy tell the story and notice, like there's something poetic going on here. No, that's what makes me, strange right it's, you know poems kind of take their knuckles and wrap on my forehead sometimes and other times you know it just sort of almost slip by me so mm -hmm. you know it's just yes yeah, so so anyway i i do think that you know this book of poems all of them are really quite amazing and over the graves the, of horses yeah and this is that one is an example of delp doing dave and mm -hmm. kicking his ass so whatever <laughs> that's how i see it well i like both <laughs> of those it's well and on the other stuff. hand you know there's room for everybody you know we, every poet and every poem has a place it doesn't have to be a competition but several times i have noticed people write my poem you know robert wrigley has a poem called anatomy of melancholy where he's writing about a dump and it's just a masterful piece. Walter MacDonald has a poem um, about going over Wolf Creek Pass, which, you know, 
take some of you know the the poems in Roadworthy and it and it out Roadworthy's Roadworthy. You know what I mean? So it's like that's the difference between you know um, people that are at the top of their game and Dave doing what he does on the side. I think I don't know. Well, maybe we should let readers be the judge of that okay, because. We can do that. It might, you know, one of the parts of the triad of the poem is the reader's reception and people might actually like one dump poem above another and they might prefer your dump poems to Wrigley's dump poems. You never know. So so remember I said we should put a pin in the audience question? Yes. Well, I just happen to have this other poem by Kay Ryan. Okay. You know, so so you asked me what the most the best compliment was and Dustin, I think, was my perfect reader, you know. Dustin Hartford. If you're listening, Dustin, you're you're my hero. Hi, um, Dustin. <laughs> probably not listening. But anyway, this this poem by Kay Ryan. So so you know, we can sit here and compare poems and poets and whatever, but listen to what Kay Ryan has to say. Ideal audience. Not scattered legions, not a dozen from a single region for whom accent matters, not a seven member coven. Not five shirt-tail cousins, just one free citizen, maybe not alive now even, who will know with exquisite gloom that only we too ever found this room. So if you have one good reader, that's all you need. Yeah, and they don't even need to be born yet. <laughs> or, you know, it could be the past reading, reading us. That's true. <laughs> you never know. Wow. Well, this has been a wide-ranging and delightful couple conversations. Thanks for taking yeah. this time to well, come. Well, I don't get to be a poet very often, so um, I'm honored and humbled and just really always love having a, you know, being able to read and talk about poetry. So, thank yeah. you. Yeah, thank you. There's two things that give me meaning in that job. The paycheck and the fucking poems. <laughs>